0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from markfiore.com, The Al Franken Show, The Young Turks, The Daily Show, On the Media, The Onion Radio News, Counterspin, and NPR with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Onion.
1: Victorious on the March! From the signing ceremony on the deck of the USS Hunky Dory, the announcement is made. Mission accomplished-ish. With the shores of Iraq and greater Georgelandia fading in the distance, the quasi-victor is forced to agree to a complete pullout of troops. As per his predecessor's timetable and the demands of the Iraqi government, the semi-victorious commander declares the great expense of blood and treasure worth it. 4,500 U.S. deaths and over 100,000 Iraqi deaths later, a virtually stable democracy something is at hand and is a model for other countries in the region yearning to become stablished some somethings too. Victory-ish, the gift that keeps on. Giving us debt payments. Giving us more veterans in need of care. And giving us the largest embassy in the world with an army of mercenaries from Baghdad to Basra. Shock and awe is a thing of the past. And Victory-ish is forever. Good night and sorry about that. It's been a bumpy
2: ride, but putting that aside, I'm speaking now forthrightly, don't think I took it lightly. Sorry about the prisoners, sorry they got raped, sorry they got tortured, sorry Upset our viewers Believe me when I say the apology sincere. I'm awfully, awfully sorry for that broomstick up there rear. Boo-boo, I made a boo. I forgot. Sorry it was evil, though deep inside we knew it. It didn't seem so bad when we got someone else to do it. Those darned humanitarian do-gooders are aghast. I heard that that convention in Geneva was a blast. boo I made not like that. Sorry, don't you trust us? Sorry that the think tank didn't think the war planned through. Sorry if you're dead, how can we make it up to you?
3: Sorry. Sorry, was really our idea. <laughs> the
4: neocons are back. Uh they're uh going to um, Homeland Security House Committee meeting uh that the Republicans have called and they're gonna tell us all the scary things that are happening. A great number of them use words like um Iran's actions in regards to the plot here to kill the uh, uh, Saudi ambassador who were, quote, an act of war. They cross red lines. It's time to stop half measures. Act of war. Act of war. Panic, right? And then they send in one well, of the top neocons, a retired army general, John Keane, and we're supposed to listen to him because he's a general. Of course, he must know what he's talking about. Well, being uh, a general who led uh, people in the battle, maybe, uh, you would think that uh, he would be you know, tempered, reserved, et cetera. You would think wrong. He thinks it is immediate time for action. First of all, he blames Obama for anything. Well, the Obama administration stopped the so called plan to kill the Saudi ambassador. Did that help them? No. He says uh, that the plan itself was, quote, a stunning rebuke to the Obama administration's policy of negotiation and isolation with the Iranians. In other words, at some point they plan to do something if you believe the government, uh, and hence, uh, Obama was wrong for ever trying to talk to them. We should immediately try to kill them. Now that might seem like hyperbole, right? Wait till you hear what his actual quotes are. They're even more over the top. He says uh, we must quote begin to treat Iran as a strategic enemy. They truly are. Okay, well, they're strategic enemy. So what are we going to do with them? He says first of all, they have been systematically killing us for over thirty years. Really? Uh, how so? Now, he refers to the bombing in 1983 that was Hezbollah initiated. We do believe that they are connected to Iran. Okay, you went back to 1983. Now, he says at some point they claimed that some of our fighters, uh, had IEDs that were made in Iran, explode and kill them. But, uh, there was a congressional report that said the number one supplier of, uh, insurgents in Iraq was Saudi Arabia. And they're our best ally in the Middle East. So how does that make any sense? But it gets much worse. He, here's his solution for what we should do. He says, quote, "Why don't we kill them? We kill other people who kill others. We're in the killing business. Why don't we just go ahead and kill them? How's that for a simple answer? Well, they might fight back. It might cause a mess like Iraq. It might not be in our best strategic interest. Nah, nonsense. General Keene's just getting warmed up. Here's his final quote We've got to put our hand around their throat now. See, all they understand is violence. That's why we have to choke them to death. So here comes the new push for war with Iran. And by the way, every so called expert that was testifying there, with the exception of one who was Larry Corb, who tried to talk some sense into them. Every other so-called expert was a neocon who said, shockingly enough, we must invade Iran immediately, because all they understand is violence.
5: With more on what's happening right now in Europe, we're joined by senior European correspondent John Oliver. John, thank you so much. Ever since the creation of the European Union, mm-hmm. there have been nearly two decades of unprecedented uh, peace, prosperity, and cooperation. Suddenly, chaos. Mm-hmm. W- what's gone wrong?
6: Well, just that, John. We've been peacefully cooperating. <laughs> Europe, at its best, is a continent of ethnically and culturally diverse societies living in a state of constant war with each other. Wait, at its, uh, at its best? Absolutely, John. Violent hatred of your neighbours gives you a permanent sense of purpose, something to cling to in times of trouble. Europe is never more stable than when it's attacking itself. <laughs> John, I, I appreciate
5: the history of Europe, but, but wars don't provide stability. What? Uh, of course they do.
6: John, John we had a 100-year war. You don't get much more stable than that. It's easy. I, I, All I, you have to do? Every morning. I don't think that's... Every morning you get up and think, oh, what will I do today? Oh, I know, I'll fight the French like I've been doing for the previous 99 years. But, but... what? Huh. Wars are and uh, uh, wars are 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 terrible. Yes (laughs) But European wars do some great things. They stimulate the global economy Foster feelings of national pride really help everyone blow off some steam and (laughs) the movies about them are terrific I mean Saving Private Ryan. Come on, John, that's a best picture winner right there. Uh, actually, uh Saving Private Ryan didn't win best
5: picture, it lost to Shakespeare in Love.
6: So. Are you fing kidding me? No. That's true. Are you fing kidding? No even have been nominated, John. We're talking about Saving Private Ryan. What a cast. So many future stars. The school was sensational and the direction, and I know you just get tired of saying this about Spielberg, was impeccable. Whereas Shakespeare in Love I, was a piece of, I, of it's John. No, I don't, it's that's, not, that's another whiff from the Academy. I understand that. That's a uh, uh,
5: point's well taken. Getting back to, to Europe. It's like uh, when I'm,
6: Dances of Wolves beat Goodfellas all over again. Let me tell you something.
5: That was a f***ing disgrace. Right. L- 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 <laughs> Scorsese is at the top of his game. There are right. so many unbelievable catchphrases that come out of that whole mm-hmm. thing. What were Dances with wolves. Tonka-tonk. Tonka-tonka. Right. I mean, the whole thing. <laughs> right. An absolute travesty uh-huh. Uh-huh. Be-
6: beyond what mm-hmm. people uh, uh, consider. Look, I'm not arguing. All right. I'm not arguing with you, John. But if we can get back to Europe. All right. <laughs> right now. It is vital that someone, at the very least, shoots an archduke and lets nature take its course. It's important. It's important.
5: To, to really get the ball rolling, I think, wouldn't Europe need, though, a, a kind of despot sure. to, to rise up? Mm-hmm. And, and in your mind, anyone on the horizon?
6: Well, no one really worth packing up your family and crossing into Switzerland to escape from. <laughs> John, everything that we've seen
5: uh, from England right now seems so senseless, and, you know, you say sense of purpose, look at the footage, there's just no
6: hope, no rhyme or reason, there's, there's... What, really? Yeah. Well, if you're not looking at it the right way, John, let me show you something, Chuck, can you uh, turn the footage black and white and give me some jaunty music, What's this, John. Alright. Summertime in Europe but everyone's feeling the heat, the German Chancellor Red Against the irresponsibility of the Greeks. Now, that's what I call a sour crowd. Meanwhile, Hollywood's brightest stars come out to shine with the premiere of the change up. It's another classic switcheroo. And that's today's world's news of the world today. Pip-pip!
5: Wow, I gotta admit. I kinda filled my heart a little bit. Yeah?
7: That's it.
5: Yeah. It really does take me back to that time when America had such purpose as right. well. You know, the greatest generation in many ways. Whoa, whoa, where they, slow down, they slow down.
6: Each other. Easy, easy now.
5: Just saying, if there's gonna be a war, maybe
6: America could jump in. Cool, cool we're really cool it, good cool at th- it. Th- cool it. I just want to cool say it, we're really good at, at these types of wars. Well, not, really so far, old, not, not so house. fast, John. Well, well, first let us do what we do, tear our entire continent apart. Then you do what you do. Sit back and watch us. Sell us weapons, build up your struggling economy, and then, at the last minute, swoop in and save the world from evil. That's what I'm talking about, Captain America! Goodbye.
8: we've noted before on the show, even though the quarter million confidential State Department cables leaked last year by WikiLeaks, have long been public, they are still officially confidential. Last spring, the American Civil Liberties Union filed under the Freedom of Information Act for copies of cables dealing with such issues as Guantanamo, rendition, and torture. And the State Department responded by offering redacted documents as if the truth were not, as it were, already out there. It's a charade that the ACLU decided to highlight by making a little mischief. Ben Wisner is the litigation director for the ACLU's National Secrecy Project.
9: The idea was to force the government to go through the declassification process and to see which of many uncomfortable responses they would come up with. Would they release the documents in full in accordance with common sense Would they withhold them in full and look silly? Would they redact them and essentially give us a roadmap to what they think is important and sensitive information and what is not? Remarkably, they chose the third option.
8: (laughs) The most revealing one.
9: (laughs) In a sense, it is. That's right. Twelve of the documents they said had to be withheld in full. Eleven, they gave us redacted versions. And so we have a unique window into the government's classification process.
8: And just for people who haven't seen a redacted document, that's where chunks of it are blacked out. You can't see through it. looks a little like Swiss cheese.
9: Well, that's right. And what we've done at ACLU.org is put up the redacted documents. But when your cursor hovers over the redacted portion, the text magically appears. And so we get to see what the government would prefer that the world not know. So in a discussion with foreign governments, you might see unredacted all of the subjects of agreement, and then the censor's pen will come out when that government is criticizing U.S. policy on rendition, on torture on Guantanamo or the like.
8: So what you've got is essentially a teachable moment and you give people who visit your site an opportunity to experience the childhood joys of Invisible ink.
9: Well, it's that and it's a little bit more. So Although there is something cheeky about asking for something that we already have, we're hoping to illuminate what is a serious issue in the way that the government abuses its secrecy privilege. The whole secrecy regime is really predicated on the asserted distinction between what is universally known and what's officially acknowledged. The fact that the whole world has access to these documents means nothing to the government and means nothing to a court until the moment that the government acknowledges them. So that the government can, for example, off the record, brag to reporters about the wonderful successes of their targeted killing drone strike program. But when we file a request under FOIA to get documents about that, they can refuse to confirm or deny the existence of that program. When we file a lawsuit seeking to set legal limits on that program, they can invoke the state secrets privilege over information that is known but not confirmed. And so the idea here is not just to have these documents, but to be able to use them. And by putting the government through the exercise of declassification, our hope was to move this from being known to being acknowledged.
8: Ben, thank you very much.
9: Brooke, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much.
8: Ben Wisner is the litigation director of the ACLU's National Security Project. We'll feature some before and after shots of those documents on our website, onthemedia.org, and we'll also offer links to the ACLU's project.
7: No, I've been on the brink, so tell me what you want to hear.
0: For the 80% of you who listen to this program via the enhanced version of the show which supports chapter markers, the following clip will include visual elements.
4: Nobody loves graphs as much as I do uh, because it shows you how much we spend on defense. Now look, before we show you the graph, understand that the uh, super committee uh, failed, so we're supposed to take out $600 uh, billion dollars from uh, spending, social spending, and also $600 billion from the Defense Department. Now, everybody in Washington is flipping out. No, we can't cut defense. Defense is the one essential thing we need. How could you possibly cut defense? Let's cut more from the middle class, right? So let's take a look and see how much we do, in fact, uh, spend on defense and get a sense of our priorities. When you combine the Department of Defense, the Veteran Affairs, and Homeland Security, we spend 59% of our discretionary budget on these military items. 59%! Uh, it, by comparison, the Department of Education, 6%. Ah, that's about 10% as important as defense, apparently. How much do we spend on justice? I love that. 2% on justice, 60% basically. On defense. Now, do you think this has anything to do with how much we need to defend this country? Are you kidding me? We spend 42% of all military spending in the world. 42% of it is spent by the United States. (laughs) How much more defense do we need? And the reality is, this ain't got nothing to do with defense. It has to do with the defense contractors who are among the most powerful lobbyists in Washington they bought just about every politician you can imagine, so we 're not going to cut defense. The one place we should cut most of all. Is the so-called Defense Department, which, by the way, should be renamed the Offense Department, because all we ever do is go on the offense, hitting you know Iraq. We had nothing new with 9/11, Afghanistan. Now we're talking about Iran. When did these countries ever attack us, Al Qaeda, which was sheltered in Afghanistan, at least attacked us. But that was the smallest of our wars. So uh, what you hear about how the Defense Department is going to be gutted, et cetera, if this goes into effect, is Garbage. And by the way, some of the waste of the Defense Department we've told you about before, for example, Lockheed Martin's F 22 Raptors. Yeah, we've only spent $66.7 billion on those. Do they work? No. In fact, Lockheed Martin had the nerve to ask for an extra $24 million to make sure that the pilots didn't pass out in the planes. Because Then they come to the festival and we had a slight problem after we spent the 66 billion dollars. It turns out when the pilots go up in the air, they uh, don't have enough oxygen and they pass out. Which by the way has been happening all the time. So then they go and ask for an extra twenty-four million dollars. No, but dude, I gave you sixty-six billion and you still screwed it up. And guess what happens? Since they run the Government basically. The government says, of course, my boss at Lockheed Martin, of course, uh, please, please hire me later. Please, please, I'm begging you. $24 million, of course, go ahead and fix it, uh, the problem that you created in the first place. The first place we should cut is the so called Defense Department. It'll, of course, in reality, be the last place that we cut.
1: It's The Onion Radio News, a new Fox reality show will determine who rules Iraq. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Executives for the Fox Network unveiled their latest reality TV venture today, Appointed by America, a new series in which contestants vie for the top spot in Iraq's post-war government. Fox Reality Programming Chief Mike Darnell. Will it be Ahmed Chalabi, leader of the exiled Iraqi National Congress, or General Tommy Franks, commander of the Allied Forces, or maybe Rashamba Williams, the Macon Georgia waitress with big dreams and an even bigger voice? The program's celebrity judges will be choreographer and former Chrysalis recording our Artist Tony Basil, internationally renowned hairstylist Vidal Sassoon, and television star Kevin Sorbo. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News, online at the...
3: Back in March, we wondered when U.S. corporate news outlets would find U.S.-NATO killing of Afghan children newsworthy. Nine children were killed in an airstrike March 1st, generating two network news stories and two brief mentions on the PBS NewsHour. On November 25th, the New York Times reported on page 12 that six children were killed in one attack in southern Afghanistan on November 23rd. News was, as far as we could tell, not reported on ABC, CBS, NBC, or the News Hour. though there were several pieces about U.S. soldiers eating Thanksgiving dinners. A subsequent New York Times editorial on the killing of 24 Pakistani soldiers by NATO airstrikes gave indication of just what priority Afghan kids might be given. Of the 24 Pakistani soldiers, the paper said, quote, We regret those deaths as we do those of all American, NATO, and Afghan troops and Pakistani and Afghan civilians killed by extremists, close quote. Civilians not killed by what the paper defines as extremists don't even make the list. As Salon columnist Glenn Greenwald observed, Americans have been trained simply to accept these incidents as though they carry no meaning, quote, It's acceptable to make arguments that American wars should end because they're costing too much money or American lives or otherwise harming American strategic interests. But piles of corpses of innocent children are something only the shrill, shallow, and unserious pacifists point to, as though they have any meaning in terms of what should be done. Close quote.
10: I have seen peace. I have seen pain. Resting on the
7: shoulders of your name Do you see the truth Through all their lies
8: Do you see the world Through troubled eyes
5: We turn now to Iran Where tensions are running high After new evidence that scientists there Have revived their top secret nuclear program Either that or Iran embracing a new style of glow-in-the-dark architecture. architecture.
11: <laughs> now, a new drama is unfolding. Iran claims it has captured one of America's most sophisticated spy planes.
8: The
10: Iranians say they have their hands on an RQ-170, a secret stealth aircraft that carries the most advanced sensors, cameras, and listening devices for spying from the air. What the RQ? No!
5: <laughs> our top secret invisible spy plane thingy ended up in Iran? How did that happen? U.S. officials tell NBC News that CIA operators on the ground were flying the drone when it suddenly veered out of control and headed deep into Iran. <laughs> That brings us to our new segment. I'm no expert, but that sounds like (laughs) Yeah, It's a a funny story. just minding our own business. You know, flying our drones and, uh, you know, spying on the Afghans. And uh, all of a sudden, Agent Nutmeg, the CIA cat, jumps on the controls. And it's like, and then the whole thing goes, whoo actually one day later they had a, a much better explanation
6: new information this morning about the u.s. drone that went down in iran over the weekend the unmanned aircraft was on a cia mission and was part of a special fleet of stealth drones that have spied on iran for years from an afghanistan airbase yeah that makes a little more sense <laughs> Well,
5: hey, look, no harm, no foul, you know what I mean? Iran, uh, uh, you're just trying to develop nuclear weapons to blow up the world, and we, you know, got outed as a high-tech beeping Tom. Yeah, let's call it a draw, you know what I mean? Uh, let's call the whole thing evil. The Iranians have recovered that wreckage. And the concern here is that they'll use those high-tech cameras and sensors to try to develop that technology for their own.
10: It could have glided into Iran largely intact. If it did, the drone's skin, which keeps it invisible from radar, could be an intelligence bonanza. Son of a...
5: (laughs) So not only did we not find out if Iran is developing dangerous new technology, we inadvertently gave them our dangerous new technology. (laughs) Oh, irony. (laughs) seems at the very least we should have intentionally crashed the drone or activated its self-destruct button unless we gave it to Iran on purpose. (laughs) Which brings us to our other new segment, well played, Iran, enjoy your Trojan drone. (laughs) Yeah, you got our drone. You think that drone skin is stealth skin? No, it actually makes you more visible. (laughs) It's like the plaid of drone skins. (laughs) Besides, even if it did have the good stealth technology, which it totally doesn't, it's not like your scientists could even figure it out.
4: Analyst Peter Singer says if the RQ-170 is relatively intact, the Iranians will likely give the drone to China. (laughs)
5: Oh yeah, you're gonna give it to China, huh? (laughs) That brings us back to our even newer new segment. (laughs) Sorry, Rand, we thought you were a real country, not China's bitch.
0: An international meeting convenes on Monday in Germany
10: to discuss the commitment to Afghanistan after NATO troops draw down. Of particular concern is the fate of Afghan women. A recent UN report suggests laws to protect women from rape and forced marriage are not being enforced, with some devastating results. NPR's Quill Lawrence has that story.
12: The Badambagh women's prison in Kabul is a desperate place, made worse by the fact that many of the inmates are here for being the victims of rape and assault. Women are regularly imprisoned for refusing to marry, for running away from their husbands, and for adultery when they are raped. That's what happened to Gulnaz, a 19-year-old who has been in prison for two years.
8: The Afghan government says I have committed a crime. That is not true. My rights have been violated, yet I'm being punished as a criminal. All I want now is to get out of here.
12: Gulnaz says her cousin's husband caught her alone at home one day when her mother had taken her cousin to see the doctor. He tied her hands and raped her. She was afraid to tell anyone, but two months later, her morning sickness gave her away. She was carrying the rapist's child. When she went to the police, they arrested the rapist, but also arrested Gulnaz for adultery. She got an initial sentence of 12 years, which has been reduced. But she is not looking forward to what may happen when she goes free. Her nine-month-old daughter, born on the prison floor, laughs as she speaks.
8: Once I'm out of here, I have no choice but to go back to the person who raped me. My life is over. I have no choice but to marry him. They have said they will give one of their daughters to my brother and also pay for the cost of the marriage.
12: Traditional solutions may be more common in Afghanistan than formal legal solutions. A girl from the perpetrator's family is given in marriage to the offended family. The rapist takes his victim as a wife, sometimes as a second wife. But a strange turn of events may have won Gulnaz a chance at a different ending. A group of filmmakers commissioned by the European Union interviewed Gulnaz and other prisoners at length, hoping to bring attention to their plight. Filmmaker Leslie Knott was involved in the project finally we came across a few women
8: who were really, really willing to want to tell their story and really passionate about sharing what they had gone through. And the reason for that was because they wanted to make sure that that it would never happen again to women in Afghanistan.
12: But after viewing the finished product, EU diplomats decided not to release the film they had funded. Vigares Usakas, the special representative of the EU in Afghanistan, says he wants publicity for the situation of Afghan women, but fears that Gulnaz and other women in the film may be put in danger. I'm in favor for uh, the broadest publicity possible, but at the same time, the sole responsibility of myself as representative of the European Union is to n- ensure that there are no repercussions to the safety and well-being of women. Gulnaz says she wants her story told, but not inside Afghanistan. Usaka says that it's impossible to prevent a film from reaching Afghanistan via YouTube or Facebook, which could put Gulnaz in danger. But a letter sent to the filmmakers from an EU representative stated, the EU delegation also has to consider its relations with the justice institutions in connection with the other work that it is doing in the sector. Usaka says that line in the letter does not represent EU policy but advocates here suggest that the EU doesn't want to sour relations with the Afghan government over the issue of women's rights. In any case, the controversy and media attention appear to have helped Gulnaz get a reduced sentence, and she may find a home in one of Afghanistan's anonymous women's shelters. But Badambagh Prison is still full of women with similar stories. (laughs) Mina is a former Afghan government employee. She asked to give only one name. She says she recently got into a fight with her husband. He threw boiling water on her, and she has scars on her face and arms. The police arrested both of them, and Mina says she expects a lengthy sentence. The media should pay attention. Our voice should be heard, says Mina. But she's concerned there will be less attention as the international presence in Afghanistan is drawing down. The United Nations recently warned in a report that time is running out to push Afghanistan's government to follow its own laws on violence against women. Georgette Gagnon directs the UN Human Rights Office in Afghanistan.
3: We're worried that women's rights will be compromised, and there will be retrograde steps taken. Women themselves are very much counting on the internationals to support them over the next few years. And in our view, it's now or never on this issue.
12: Gagnon says as things stand, Afghan laws are often trumped by traditional Afghan justice, which she says doesn't protect women and often lets perpetrators walk free. Quill Lawrence NPR News. And
10: we have one update since this report was filed. The Afghan government has announced a pardon for Gulnaz, the main character in Quill's story, though it's not clear if, according to Afghan tradition, she will be forced to marry the man who raped her.
7: It's a beautiful
13: An Egyptian court has banned virginity tests that the military was conducting against women who would be detained. Now this is really great news because it's the first time that the court has ruled against the military, but at the same time, this court doesn't actually have any jurisdiction over the military. Now the interesting thing is, uh, after the military conducted these virginity tests, at first they denied doing them. And then they said, okay, fine, we did do it, but we did it to protect ourselves because we didn't want these women to go off and claim that we raped them.
5: Oh, right,
4: right, Because right, right. virginity
13: yes. has anything to do with rape. A virgin can't be raped, right?
4: Right. Uh, so uh, their uh, real reason for doing it was that they wanted to intimidate uh, the protesters. And they've been doing this for a long time. Uh, and they used to, of course, do it under Mubarak. And uh, what they, uh, uh, the point of it was. Uh, to if you come out to protest that you are one of these loose women, et cetera, and that you're going to get groped, and and they did. That was other things that they would do. They, and then sometimes they would rip their clothes off. And obviously there was the famous blue bra uh, woman uh, in the recent round of protests that everybody across the world saw. And uh, and but the worst of all was the virginity test. Now how do you think they test your virginity, right?
13: It's the most degrading thing that you can possibly do to a woman. You take her into a doctor's office and have a doctor check her down there while military officials and other men are standing there watching.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And, gee, I wonder if that was done to intimidate them into not protesting. Of course, of course it was. And it was to insinuate that if you're uh, out there protesting with the men that you're a slut and it was just hideous and i of course hope that it never comes back and no, that they can actually enforce this
13: right and you know the blue bra woman incident i think really struck a nerve with a lot of people in egypt and as you can remember a day after the after that occurred you know thousands of women took to the streets and they protested against it and i feel like and i could be wrong about this but i feel like at this point People in Egypt have done a good job in intimidating the military to a certain extent. Because now you have the military kind of like stepping back, denying things, saying, no, 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 we didn't do that, pretending as though members of their military did not do what they did to that blue broad woman. For instance, uh, the media there. Zoomed in on the members of the military that were dragging that woman, and one of them was wearing white sneakers. And they're like, Oh, no, 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 our military men don't wear white sneakers. So it could have been someone uh, posing as a member of the military. So the they're job trying job, to yeah. deny things at this point. Yeah. But I like that. I-, I like the fact that people are taking to the streets. They're not intimidated by this, and they are in turn intimidating the military members. That is great news.
4: Uh, I guess the Egyptian military said the equivalent of I would never wear those ugly ass shoes. It's the OJ defense. (laughs) Okay. So it must not have been me. Yeah, I know. The protesters went out there and beat themselves viciously and dragged each other through the streets in order to set up this conspiracy, right? Uh, Yeah, and I'm sure they did the virginity test on one another, too, right? Ridiculous. If there's a question
7: bothering your brain. test If somebody says they figured it out and they're leaving any room for doubt come up with a test Yeah, you need a test
10: There's a small group of corporate pundits who are considered experts in foreign affairs Tom Friedman and Fareed Zakaria probably top that list, though it's hard to figure out why exactly. Zakaria's latest column in Time magazine is a case in point. Writing about U.S.-Pakistan relations, Zakaria concluded, There is a fundamental tension in U.S. policy toward Pakistan. We want a more democratic country, but we also want a government that can deliver cooperation on the ground. In practice, we always choose the latter, which means we cozy up to the military and overlook its destruction of democracy me. Close quote. Now, to be clear, Zakaria thinks this is a bad thing, but it's unusual to see a pundit of Zakaria's stature talking about the U.S. preference for military rule over democracy. But if that's always the U.S. preference, then is there really any tension to speak of? Zakaria might actually be talking about the conflict in his own mind. As of last summer, he wrote a column explaining that, quote, all American presidents have supported and should support the spread of democracy, close quote. In March of 2000, Zakaria made a baffling argument that Reagan-era policy in Latin America supported human rights and democracy. Perhaps that's if you skip the supporting death squad stuff. And then there was the time Zakaria complained about Haiti, a place quote, where the United States has attempted to foster democracy on and off for almost a century, close quote. Well, that's one way to describe a period that included a military occupation and supporting a coup against Haiti's democratically elected president. Now, maybe Zakaria deserves credit for becoming more clear-eyed and critical about U.S. foreign policy. If that's really what's happening, expect to see less of him in the corporate media.
5: You know, we here at The Daily Show recognize that being a politician in the public eye takes courage, Uh, bravery, steadfastness, in the face of long hours, weighty decisions, and the uh, incessant buzz of the North American douche fly, (laughs) (laughs) there to ridicule and poke fun at your every move and gesture, Colbert. But there's a fine line between courage and audacity, and several public figures have recently crossed it. It's the subject of our new segment. Holy shit, you got some huge hairy mother balls on you. <laughs> Brought to you by Lowe's Hardware. The one-stop home improvement shop that legally can't prevent us from pretending they sponsored our ball segment. <laughs> We think. We don't actually know that that's true. Is that true? I don't even know. First up, former presidential candidate Herman Cain. While he was running for office, he captured the nation's heart with his command of foreign policy.
1: When they ask me who's the president of you Becky, 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 Stan, Stan, I'm going to say, you know, I don't know. Okay, Libya.
5: I know that look. That look says, where is the fire alarm in this room? And can I pull it without being noticed? Well, this week, Kane sat down with Barbara Walters as one of her 10 most fascinating people of 2011. By the way, very impressive that Walters always lands all 10 of any given year's most fascinating people.
10: What kind of cabinet position might you like, if it were possible?
6: We are speaking totally, totally hypothetical, right? No, Herman Cain.
5: (laughs) This is your job interview for a cabinet position.
10: What kind of cabinet position might you like, if it were possible?
6: We are speaking totally, totally hypothetical, right? Totally, totally
9: hypothetical. Uh, Department of Defense.
5: What? (laughs) that was so ballsy it made Barbara Walters do a reporter's equivalent of a spit take <laughs> the lady has been on TV since TV started and has never reacted viscerally like that to a statement. I statement she has faced down crazy bull from dictators from presidents from moguls and, and movie stars Sherry Shepard told her she wasn't sure if the world was round and didn't get a what Last week, the Syrian dictator Assad, who has launched a brutal, murderous crackdown on his own people, told Barbara Walters this:
7: okay. "We don't kill our people. Nobody kill. No government in the world kill its people unless it's led by crazy person." That. That.
5: That didn't get a what? Barbara Walters was able to suppress her incredulity in all of those situations, but five minutes with Herman Cain!
9: Department of Defense.
5: What? It blew her mind. Literally blew her mind. Look at her ears. Look at her ears on there. You can say, blood! There's blood coming out of her ears. Gave the woman an aneurysm. Oh. Sadly, we have bigger balls to fry. Balls that belong to one Willard Mitt Romney, who is facing a bit of an uphill battle in his race to be the Republican nominee. And by uphill battle, I mean nobody seems to want to vote for him.
3: (laughs) So he's decided on a ballsy new tact. He is going after Gingrich, questioning his conservative credentials.
5: Romney is questioning Gingrich's conservative credentials. Barbara? What? What? This is what Mitt Romney, the former not-pro-life, pro-gay governor of Massachusetts, says about Newt Gingrich's consistency of thought.
3: The number of times he has moved from one spot to another has been remarkable. I think he's shown a level of unreliability as a conservative leader today. The,
7: bull's on the- You're talking about you! <laughs>
5: a sack that Santa would look out and go we're gonna need a bigger sled <laughs> by the way Romney wasn't just saying Gingrich was inconsistent he was specifically saying Gingrich wasn't conservative enough Romney how would you describe it not ideologically pure enough conservative and uh, can you frame it as a positive in 2002
1: I think people recognize that I'm not a partisan Republican, that I'm someone who is moderate and that my my views are progressive.
5: Yes, and by by progressive I mean my views will progress in any direction necessary. (laughs) Seriously. Seriously. You're the guy who's so far to the left in his own party that this afternoon, Fox News, this is true, accidentally used a photo of Barack Obama (laughs) where a picture of you should go. And let me tell you something. That's That's not because you guys look alike. Which brings us to our baller of the week. Recall that last week, one of our high-tech, top-secret, supercharged, fully-loaded, shift-on-the-fly, invisible, laser-guided, robo-controlled, spy drones of the future uh, ran out of batteries over Iran. (laughs) Thereby falling into the hands of an evil militant regime, and since then, their military has been banging our baby in an aircraft carrier. (laughs) Well, guess what? President Obama has a message for Iran. With respect to the drone uh, inside of uh, Iran, we have asked for it back. You asked for it back. You were spying on them a drone. You're acting like we lent them season one of The Wire. You know, I'm gonna need that back. It takes giant balls to ask for your spy drone back. Uh, I'd be like, hey, uh, yeah, man, I'm sorry, is this Bill? Yeah, I was just over at your house banging your wife, and uh, I think I left my shoes there. You mind FedExing those bad boys? Yeah, it's not so much the shoes, I got orthotics in them, and I really, hello? Hello? So how did Iran respond?
3: Iran has basically said, forget about it. The deputy commander of the Iranian armed forces said, look, nobody likes uh, spy drones in its territory, and we certainly don't give them back. Um, No nation would do that.
5: You flummoxed Iran, a country that denies the Holocaust and the existence of gay people within its borders. They heard your proposal and said, obviously, I'm loosely translating from the Farsi here. What? And that's why Barack Obama is the recipient of the inaugural Lowe's Hardware.
4: Syria, the news continues to be disastrous, uh, apparently in a town called Khafer Awaid. Uh, there has been, uh, in the Idlib province, a uh, massive attack by the government on the citizens. Uh, several different uh, agencies are reporting that over a hundred have been killed, including the British-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights uh, and the Local Coordination Committees, which is another activist group. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, the Syrian government, of course, is not allowing journalists in, so it's very hard to confirm the exact numbers, but it appears that there was a massacre there. Also 70 troops tried to basically defect and go to the other side near the Turkish border. They were gunned down and killed. So uh, the bloodshed continues. Now of course the Syrians had promised the Arab League, oh no, 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 we're done, no, of course, no more bloodshed, we promise, we promise. They went back home and immediately started doing these killings. So all they're trying to do is buy time. But the real point I wanted to make here for you, the analysis on this, is that you might be wondering how, why are the Syrians getting to do so much violence and nobody's doing anything about it? So Arab League says, "Oh, we condemn you," right? And a lot of that is Sunni Shia politics, uh, and and but then there's no real action. European uh, nations aren't doing anything. The U.S. isn't doing anything, and. Over 5,000 have been killed, according to the United Nations, so far in that uprising. And it's been a largely peaceful one. They're basically getting mowed down. Now it's finally beginning to get to the point where some of the army is defecting, as I just said. So it's developing into more of a Libya situation. But the reason Syria is doing this level of violence and getting away with it is because they know that they can get away with it. Because Israel uh, is perfectly happy with Bashar Assad they don't want a democratically elected government in syria because they're worried that the syrian population is very anti-israel i get it if you're israel that's a legitimate concern for you should that mean that we shouldn't support syrian democracy of course not but it in effect does it mean that of course of course it means that because if israel's not in favor of it that means the united states is not in favor of it uh... so we put out statements saying Bashar how dare you you're a naughty naughty boy don't do that we'll see you later wink okay and so we're not gonna do a damn thing about it the Europeans just you know spent all their energy on Libya and by the way here's another factor if you don't know is very very relevant Syria has in effect no oil so it's you would take down a pro-Israeli government relatively speaking right certainly relative to what they might get in its place and there's no oil interest nobody's going into Syria they can kill as many people as they like the only country that seems genuinely mad about it is Turkey because they're their neighbors and it's affecting them you got the refugees coming in etcetera, etc cetera. so they're pissed so on an off chance they might do something but that would be a mess right But outside of that, there's no chance anybody's going to do anything unless it becomes a Sunni Shia mess. But the Western powers are like, yeah, damn shame what's happening in Syria. We'll see how it sorts itself out. So, Syrian protesters, democracy movement, if you're looking for help from the West, unfortunately, you're probably looking at the wrong place. Not likely to happen. That's the reality.
7: This is an SOS to anyone who can jump by distress. And I will send a message in a bottle as far as I need to. Who knows the distance it will take to get to you.
11: Is it still unclear why the United States invaded Iraq? You might think so if you heard CBS Evening News anchor, Scott Pelley, say this on December 1st. What began in 2003 as an effort to overthrow Saddam Hussein became a vicious religious war, pitting Iraqi against Iraqi, with the U.S. caught in the middle. In fact, the U.S. invaded Iraq over non-existent weapons of mass destruction, and as instigators of the war, the U.S. cannot credibly be considered to be caught in the middle. At the very end of the piece, Pelly says, In addition to the American losses, it is estimated that more than 50,000 Iraqi civilians were killed in the war. An on-screen graphic cites the number of dead at 50,152, sourcing the figure to iCasualties.org. But that figure is a tally of deaths only since January 2005, as iCasualties' website clearly indicates. What's more, iCasualties includes caveats to the effect that the numbers are incomplete, stating, quote, Actual totals for Iraqi deaths are much higher than the numbers recorded on this site, close quote. The site suggests that readers visit Iraq Body Count or read a study in the British medical journal Lancet for more detailed information. The Iraq body count estimate for civilian deaths as a result of violence is 104,000 to 113,000. The group notes that WikiLeaks documents could indicate an additional 15,000 deaths. Other estimates are far higher. The 2006 Lancet study estimated 600,000 violent deaths. Another survey conducted by the British polling firm Opinion Research Business put the death toll at over one million. And there are other sources, all higher than the clearly inaccurate number Pelley reported, which raises the question, why would CBF's Evening News report the lowest death toll estimate it could find, one that, according to the group that published it, is a gross underestimate?
1: The Onion Radio News. The U.S. plans to give every Iraqi $3,544.91 and let free market capitalism do the rest. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Instead of funding an array of military and reconstruction operations estimated to cost nearly $90 billion, the money will now be divided equally among Iraq's citizens. Tekrete resident Ahmed Alawi is excited. Any day now, there should be something available to spend this money on. As for today, the open air market. On the street is still on fire. According to Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, all we have to do is quote, stand back and let the market do its thing, and a perfectly functioning, merit based, egalitarian society will rise out of the ashes, and probably some restaurants and hardware stores, too. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Online. Friends,
7: from the ashes, we must rise.
4: At the end of the Bush term, we were scared to death that uh, Cheney was going to convince Bush that we should go into Iran. Uh, the number one thing I was glad about is that we docked the ship and we avoided that disastrous war. And uh, and there's been good signs in the Obama administration on that front. Uh, all throughout, Obama has been saying that he's in favor of negotiations. Meanwhile, we've been conducting a covert secret war against Iran, some of which I disagree with, uh, some of which I agree with when we did the Stuxnet uh, program that destroyed their uh, computer system and set them back at least a year. Hey, look, all's uh, fair and love and war. That's not killing anybody. That's innocent. That's not violence. It's not an invasion. They try to get our computers. We try to get their computers, set back their nuclear program. That's fine in my book, okay? Uh, but it's about to get worse. Leon Panetta uh, had said earlier, and of course he's the Secretary of Defense, that uh, he. It would be a bad idea if Israel unilaterally went and bombed Iran. It would start a war that we could not control, and it was a war that was a bad idea, OK? Of course, Israel went to, you know, uh, level five in how angry they were over that, they had their ambassador uh, to the United States, Michael Oren, go and uh, file a diplomatic protest known as a demash. Oh, we've been demolished. But of course in the US they take that incredibly seriously. Oh my god, Israel's angry with us. Well, what can we do to immediately change our position? So of course Leon Panetta is now back out, talked to CBS News recently and said, "Oh no no, don't get us wrong, military option is definitely on the table. There is a red line that if Iran crosses it, we will attack them." Okay, great. Okay, war back on the table. Uh the establishment is ecstatic about that. Uh so now what are some of the ways that we can go to that war? Well, uh... right now uh... congress passed by a vote of one hundred and nothing economic sanctions that go after iran's oil supply now throughout the last five years we've been doing economic sanctions on iran but the one thing we didn't touch was the oil because for a number of reasons one if you go after the oil it gets a lot more serious because that is obviously a huge chunk of their income uh... An overwhelming amount of their income in iran uh... and hence they will take action against that much more importantly though if you cut off Iran's oil, it increases gas prices for all of us, all across the world. It sinks us further into a recession and causes more unemployment. And obviously, higher gas prices are bad in and of themselves, right? So they think that they've gotten a clever idea on how to get around that. They're not just going to cut off uh, Iran's oil, but they're going to pressure the people that buy their oil not to buy it, so that Iran will have to give them a discount and actually make less money off of it. Good luck, okay. Or it can go terribly wrong. Gas prices could go high. ExxonMobil in the back rooms will be going, yes! Thanks God! <laughs> right? And so here come the sanctions. And look, uh, President Obama, it's tough to blame him for this one. <laughs> Congress voted 100 to nothing, okay? So everybody keep it real. The people at fault here is Congress, Democrats and Republicans alike. Why, of course, Israel was angry, they want to go get Iran. By the way, the one thing that we ask of Israel in return for keeping the military option on the table is, hey, if you're gonna do the military option, at least let us know before you do it, right? So far the Netanyahu government has said, yeah, I don't think so, buddy. You don't run the show, we run the show. No, we will not let you know, we will do whatever the hell we like and you'll just take it. I've got a hundred and nothing in your Congress over your head. So what are you gonna do about it? And Netanyahu is right. Nothing Obama can do about it. So, here we go. Now, the Iranians come out, and uh, their uh, first vice president, Mohammed Reza Rahimi, says, yeah, uh, uh, lovely, Uh, by the way, we are the third largest energy exporter in the world, and quote, if they impose sanctions on Iran's oil exports, then even one drop of oil cannot flow from the Strait of Hormuz. So we're gonna block the Strait of Hormuz. He says it's really easy to do. I don't know if I believe that. Uh but if they do, here comes a debacle. Not only militarily, but as I explained, economically. Europe will be in huge trouble, we'll be in huge trouble, we're already in big trouble, and it spirals out of control. Possibly. Now look, Iran loves to bluff too. And do they really have the military capability to overcome our military in blocking the Strait of Hormuz? I don't know. But do we want to go down that road? Do we want to start a war where now all of a sudden we're fighting each other in the Strait of Hormuz? And then Iran turns around and says, oh, by the way, Hezbollah and Lebanon and possibly Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Go get them. Oh, What an epic disaster that would be. And right now we are on that road and nobody's veering us off that road.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. No time to listen to voicemails today because I have to tell you the best idea I have ever had, and I'm not even really joking about that. I I think it's a brilliant idea for political organizing. So I I promised this in the last show because we have a listener of this program who is running for Congress as an independent in Texas, and so Brian, Brian Ingram, brianingram.com, he's running for Congress and uh, he's basically going to call in every once in a while and let us know how it goes. And I knew from the moment I heard, not not from Brian, but from another caller who called in and, and said, hey, I, I heard someone's running for Congress. Could he keep us informed somehow of how he's doing that? Could he keep a blog? I'd be interested to hear how that goes. As soon as I heard that, I knew that Brian is going to inspire someone else to run for Congress because that's just what's going to – it's inconceivable to me that that's not going to happen. So what's the magic behind that? Uh, you know, If my theory is correct, what is the, what's the magic behind Brian calling into this show and convincing someone else to do what he's doing? Well, so my theory is that doing things like running for Congress that are way outside of our normal perspective – are, uh, you know, difficult, intimidating, scary, all those sorts of things, because we're just unfamiliar with it. But Brian is going to demystify all of those things by calling in and saying, you know, hey, this is what I did. And I went down to the office and I turned in some signatures and now I'm on the ballot. And, you know, and he's going to make it, he's just going to break it down piece by piece. And we'll see, you know, that it's it's not nearly as intimidating as we think it is. So that reminded me of the best political organizing idea I have ever had, and I'll share that with you now. So running for Congress is, you know, it takes a special person to run for Congress, but it doesn't take a special person to influence Congress. Anyone can do that. And the way you contact your representative of whatever level, federal, state, local, the way you contact them makes a difference in how they weight your opinion. So if you show up in their office, that's better than writing them a handwritten letter. Writing them a handwritten letter is better than calling them. Calling them is better than, uh, you know, clicking yes on an internet petition. You get the idea. So it, it's it's on the matter of calling that I want to talk about because, you know, it is incredibly easy yet still incredibly effective because they know that you're making the effort and you're a real person talking to a real person. You know, you're not a computer program. And, you know, but it's it's still – it's much easier to get someone to make a phone call to Congress than to write a letter, put it in an envelope, buy a stamp, go to the post office, you know, the whole bit. You know, so it's, it's this great happy medium that you can use as a political organizer to get your supporters to contact Congress on your behalf to push for your issue that, you know, you and your supporters care about – and yet, getting people to call Congress is incredibly difficult. And my theory on why it's hard to get people to call Congress is the same reason why it's hard to convince yourself that you could run for Congress. Because it's intimidating, it's scary, you don't know what it's going to be like, you don't know who you're going to talk to, and, you know, it's, it's intimidating. And so in the same way that Brian is going to demystify running for Congress for us by calling into the show... My best political organizing idea ever demystifies calling into Congress. So what I suggest, and I have suggested this to organizer friends of mine in the past, and their eyes got huge, and they said yeah, that is a brilliant idea. We need to do that right away. So what you do is, you know, you make sure that it's okay. As an organizer, you, you contact, you know, the the Congressperson that you are that you're targeting. You make sure it's okay to do this because you don't want uh, any wiretapping laws coming down on you. But you record a constituent call to the congressperson's office from beginning to end. You know, you ring in, you get connected, you speak with the human on the other side, you tell them who you are and what your opinion is, and uh, you know, and it doesn't take very long, and then you're done. And you take that recording and you distribute it to your supporters and that is how you you know cuz no amount of writing them an email promising that it's easy or uh, or you know giving them the phone number and saying look all you have to do is is dial this number and read this script i mean it that's all helpful but i don't think that any of it is as effective as actually showing them how easy it is so actually allowing them to hear what it is you know what it's going to be like when they call Maybe we could all even agree that calling congress shouldn't be intimidating because they're our repre- you know they work for us. We're the boss, right? You know, so it shouldn't be intimidating, but it is anyways. And and that's just the psychological truth of it. So if you have a recording, say like listen to how easy it is. The amount of people who will call who wouldn't have otherwise because they're, you know, emboldened and and you know given the confidence to do it because they will see how easy it is. I really just think that it would go through the roof. So there you go. That is the best idea I've ever had on political organizing. Take it, use it freely, uh, You know, use it to your own benefit. It may be the best idea I've av- ever had on any topic, but I don't keep very good track, so I don't know. Uh, but if I ever come up with a better idea, you'll certainly hear about it here. But in the meantime, that's as good as it gets. So for today, uh, the only thing left to do is thank a couple of members, as I always do. I found a couple of special members today. Uh, David J signed up. For a socialist membership, socialist monthly membership on June 24th, but then later upgraded uh, to one more level up to a full blown communist membership. So huge thanks to David for doing that. And Kate D. signed up in the same month, June 27th, and went straight for a communist yearly membership, paid for a full year in advance. Uh, So huge thanks to uh, very supportive members, David and Kate, and of course all the members of all levels uh, and, and individual donors as well. I couldn't do it without you guys. You guys make the show possible. Of course, everyone can help support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by helping spread the word of individual clips that you particularly like through your social networks. All that can be done through the website. To stay tuned into the show between episodes, you can join up with us on Facebook and Twitter. For details on the show itself, you can find links to all of the individual clips and music used in this and every episode. All that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
7: Brian's girl, black and white, who took apart a picture that wasn't right, pitch burning on a shining sheet, the only maker that you want to meet, a dying man in a living room, The shadow bases before. will take you out anyhow. to fall.